Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Galatians chapter 5. I mentioned in the first episode of this series that most scholars divide this letter into three major sections. In the first two chapters, Paul is defending his authority as an apostle. In the next two chapters, he's clarifying and expounding the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And then in the final two chapters, he is explaining the ethical and lifestyle implications of believing in this gospel. It is that final section that we begin discussing here today. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is a very awkward chapter division. Verse 1 is really the completion of the argument being made in chapters 3 and 4. And then verse 2 of chapter 5 is where the new content really begins. Paul has been making the point that we have become the grown heirs of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. We are filled with the Spirit now, as opposed to being under the authority of our schoolmaster. We have graduated, as it were, and while we should still respect our old schoolmaster, we are grown-ups now. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Grown-ups move forward. They don't regress and begin to suck their thumbs again or to crawl around on the floor. You're an adult, the Apostle Paul says. Now act like it. That is the conclusion of the Apostle's argument on these matters. And now he begins to deal more in implications. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love." Here, Paul is addressing Gentile Christians who are thinking of getting circumcised. He says, in effect, if you do that, if you do it thinking that it will somehow complete or validate your salvation, then you will have severed the bond you have with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You will lose the flow of grace that has begun all of this marvelous change in your life. And you'll be right back in the desert of failure with historic Judaism. Did keeping the law empower them to become the people of God? No. So why would you give up on what has worked powerfully in you to embrace something that didn't work powerfully in them? That is madness, Paul says. Now, to be clear, he isn't preaching against circumcision per se. Paul's standard approach was to tell people that if they had already been circumcised, to stay circumcised. If they hadn't been, then they weren't to seek it. He said that, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, 17-20. He says there that this is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. 
Circumcision is not a factor, Paul says, one way or the other. It doesn't matter. What matters is faith working through love. Hearing that can save you a lot of unnecessary trouble and conflict as a Christian. In, in fact, reading this passage alongside of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and 8 would be a very useful and life-giving exercise. Paul says that all of these outward things, circumcision, eating bacon, not eating bacon, none of it matters. It doesn't make you any better or any worse in terms of your relationship with God. He says that in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So eat bacon or don't eat bacon. I don't care, Paul says. Just don't think it makes you any more or less saved. And please, whatever you do, don't fight about it with other believers. That right there could save us an awful lot of trouble and tension in the church. Do you like bacon? Good for you. Do you not like bacon? Weird, but good for you. Just don't try and bring your food preferences or your hygiene preferences into the realm of faith. Leave that over there in the realm of personal preference. Don't make it a faith issue and don't fight about it with other believers. None of it matters. What matters is faith working through love. Hallelujah. Verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul uses an athletic metaphor here. He says, you were running well. Who shoved you off the track? Verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision... Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Here, Paul says, there's a troubler on the loose among you. You're trying to run your race over there, doing really well, got off to a great start. And now there's a theological hooligan running around on the track trying to interfere with your progress. This isn't from the Lord, and he will no doubt suffer judgment. As for you, Paul says, I'm confident that you will not be finally dissuaded by this fellow, but will shortly get yourselves back on track and running the course that has been laid for you. As for the troubler himself, I wish he'd follow his views to their logical extreme. If taking a little bit of flesh would be helpful to one's spiritual progress, then why not take the whole? Obviously, Paul was capable of a little bit of theological hyperbole. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Here we encounter one of the earliest polemical challenges to the Christian faith. People would say, if you tell people that salvation is by faith alone and not by works of the law, then those people will charge headlong into debauchery. And we know that some people, in fact, did make that charge. 
Uh, and we know, in fact, that some people were worthy of that charge. Jude had, Jude had to write to his people warning them that certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude verse 4. So we know for a fact that people found the ditch on either side of this gospel road in the earliest days of the Christian church. Some people did think that if we're saved by grace through faith, then we can just do whatever we want. That is the heresy of antinomianism. And some people said that we aren't saved by faith alone. We're saved by faith and by works of the law. That is the heresy of the Judaizers. Paul here insists on the middle road. We are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves us must never be alone. It must always result in love. And love is the fulfillment of the law. That's what the law was. It was a teacher pointing us in the direction of love. Love for God and love for neighbor. Thus, there is no contradiction between law and love if both are understood correctly. The first four commandments tell us how to love God. The next six commandments tell us how to love one another. Now, of course, the law doesn't help us love one another. That wasn't its job. It just tells us how to do it. It points us in the right direction. But it is grace flowing into us through faith and by the Holy Spirit that allows us and empowers us to do what the law commends. Thus, in Romans 3, 31, Paul says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You see, it's only as a Christian, saved by faith alone in Christ alone, that you can receive the grace and help necessary to begin loving God and other people in the way suggested and commended by the law. Do that and do not bite and devour one another. So many Christians today, particularly though not exclusively young Christians, particularly though not exclusively male Christians, attempt to express their devotion to Christ through vicious fighting with one another. But Paul here commends a better way. Luther says here that there are too many who not only neglect charity, but also hate one another to the death. They think they sin not, nor offend God at all, closed quote. He goes on to say, let every man do his duty in that kind of life which God has called him to. Let him not lift up himself above others, nor find fault at other men's works and commend his own. But let everyone serve another through love. Closed quote. Good counsel there, I'm sure, for us all. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul is saying here that human nature is characterized by certain desires, certain lusts of the flesh. These are fallen and distorted desires that, if heeded, will lead a person into all manner of dehumanizing activities. They will drag you down, and they will drag others down. But a person who's been saved by faith in Christ is now filled with the Spirit of Christ, a Spirit that will lead you up out of these sorts of base desires and into the life of the kingdom. Thus, as Tim Keller says, there are two natures at work in every Christian the spirit, and the sinful nature. At any point in our life, we will live by one and not gratify the other. Paul, of course, encourages the Galatians to live by the spirit. Closed quote. If you're being led by the lusts of the flesh, then you'll be moving down deeper into the works of the flesh. You'll be engaging in destructive behaviors, such as sexual immorality, occult activities, useless strife and dissension, envy, drunkenness, carousing, etc. If you do that, if your life is characterized by that sort of stuff, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, at first glance, that sounds almost like Paul is contradicting himself here and advocating for some kind of works-based salvation. R. Alan Cole says very helpfully, Although Paul is emphatic that we cannot, by doing the works of the law, enter our promised inheritance, but that entry is by faith alone, yet he strongly asserts here that by doing these very different things, we can bar ourselves from the kingdom. That is not the paradox that it seems to us at first sight. Paul's whole point is that those who do such things thereby show themselves to be without the transforming gift of faith, close quote. So Paul isn't saying that if we do these things or give ourselves to these things, we lose our salvation. Rather, he is saying, if we do these things and give ourselves to these things, we merely prove that we are not saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. Because if we were, we would be moving in a very different direction. Now he tells us about that. He says in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the direction that saved and Spirit-filled people are growing, slowly but surely. Paul uses an agricultural metaphor here. You don't have to be an actual farmer to know that you, you don't just put seed in the ground and then pop, out comes a bunch of fully formed fruit. No, there's, there's a bit of a process here. It, it's a slow and gradual process. And of course, you have to watch over it carefully. You may have to do some weeding and, and you'll want to do some watering. But if the seed is good, then the fruit will come. That's what Paul is saying. The Spirit will give birth to these things in a real believer. Now, as for the words themselves, most of them are fairly well known. Love means to serve other people and to pursue their well-being. See, for example, 1 Corinthians 13 for a longer definition. Joy means to delight in God for who he is and what he's done. Peace means to rest in God and to receive from God as opposed to taking from other people. Patience is the ability to face trouble without blowing up or lashing out. Kindness 
is the quality of serving others practically and showing mercy. Goodness means integrity, being the same person in every situation. Faithfulness means loyalty, courage, and being true to your word. Gentleness means to be humble. It's the opposite of being self-assertive. Self-control generally refers to sexual self-control. It means to live well and contentedly within the boundaries that have been set for you and to be able to pursue the important at the expense of the urgent. Against such things, there is no law. If you're doing such things under the power and leading of the Holy Spirit, then you need no law. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Tim Keller says here, crucifying the sinful nature is really the identification and dismantling of idols. It means to put an end to the ruling and attractive power that idols have in our lives. Closed quote. So basically, it means looking for outsized desires in your life. Good things that are threatening to become God things over desires, things we want too much or in the wrong way. Find those things, Keller says, and attack them at the root. Ask motivational questions. Why do I want that so much? Why do I want it in that way? What is that saying about me? Find that root, locate that root, and then starve it and preach the gospel to it. That's what it means to crucify the sinful nature. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's the positive counterpart to crucifying the flesh. Kill the one, grow the other. Keep in step with the Spirit. Walk with Him. Grow that relationship and live your life out of its overflow and abundance. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This spiritual way of life, Paul says, utterly forbids all arrogance, all vainglory, all provoking one another. In, in the Greek, uh, the word there is prokalumenoi. It literally means all calling out to fight, all ungenerous rivalry. Don't do that and don't envy one another. Such things are utterly out of step with the life of the Spirit. Have nothing to do with them because such things have nothing to do with the Spirit. Those are the works of the flesh. But you, if you're of faith, have been saved and filled with the Spirit. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. 
There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 